You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome all. Um, To start with, M Pavilion exists on the stolen land of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. I pay respect to Elders past, present, as well as to any First Nations people here today. As the oldest continuous culture on earth, um, for countless generations, First Nation women have played a vital role in placemaking on this land. So I'd love to think about that today as we progress through our discussions. Um, my name's Namisha Kennett. I'm Head of Development for Nightingale Housing. Nightingale Housing is a not-for-profit organisation building apartments that are socially, financially and environmentally sustainable. We believe that homes should be built for people, not for profit. Uh, we are passionate about promoting the value of social and affordable housing and we partner with community housing providers such as WPI to integrate affordable homes within our communities. I welcome here today three inspiring women who are working towards housing equity for women and gender diverse people. Um, Next to me is Lisa Garner, co-founder of the architecture practice Leanne, following a successful entry into the Victorian government's future homes competition in 2020. She's currently involved in the delivery of the first demonstration project of this initiative, delivering 12 new social home housing units in Melbourne's western suburbs, which is fantastic. We have Jeanette Large, who is CEO of Women's Property Initiatives, who many of you may be familiar with. WPI creates creates new beginnings for women facing homelessness by providing affordable permanent homes. Jeanette has extensive experience across the housing sector and is on the board of CHIA Vic and is the chair of the Victorian Women's Housing Alliance. Um, And lastly, but not least, Jennifer Koulas is a Churchill Fellow um, 2020 who has undertaken international research exploring innovative housing models for women and women-headed households. She has previously worked as development manager at Nightingale Housing, which is fantastic for us, and is currently a senior policy advisor at Homes Melbourne, which is um, run by the City of Melbourne. So welcome today and thanks for joining us. So our discussion today really centres around how we can ensure the perspective of women and gender diverse people are factored into residential building design. Equity and gender representation is essential at all stages of the process, from the earliest architectural plans to engaging with communities in need of affordable housing. So just to kick off, I wanted to talk a bit about homes um, and gender and the historic roles and responsibilities um, in this space. So. Uh, I will start with yourself, Lisa, if you would like to kick off from an architectural lens on that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the roles and responsibilities of women in a household have changed a lot in the last 50 years or 100 years, and um, housing structures haven't always managed to keep up with that change. Um, And I think the gendered experience of every space is quite different, and I've 
I've definitely found it really interesting um, working in a, a practice and we're, we're a male and female-led practice and it's always interesting um, the different points of contention we have about different things, which really makes me realise that um, everyone's lived experience really shapes the way that the decisions they make in design, um, which is why I think it's so important to have yeah, an equal representation in the design process. I agree with that. And Jeanette? Did you have any thoughts on that from a WPI lens? Um, well, Women's Property Initiatives, WPI, we provide homes for women-headed households. So your traditional family um, uh, construct, I suppose, of the uh, um, standard, you know, male and female and, and, you know, kids and so forth doesn't necessarily uh, apply for what we're providing with... Um, women-headed households. There are, you know, women, I suppose, that, that we house, we house women with children, without children. So it really depends on uh, the complement of the home, but there's many things that I think that are in that traditional, uh, the woman stays at home <laughs> and looks after the kids, or the woman stays at home and looks after the domestic side, no longer really exists. So we do need to look at different designs. Um, We've done quite a bit, particularly around older women and housing and what the needs are for them. Uh, so, but we might get into that a bit later. Uh, and just some of the important designs that are required that aren't necessarily taken into consideration, thinking, well, if you're just a single woman, all you need is a single bedroom. That's actually you know, not the case. You do other things in your life other than just uh, use your, your home or your apartment. Um, you know, you, you might study, you might... Um, do an art activity, you're looking after grandchildren, all those sorts of things. But, yeah, um, maybe that's it. <laughs> Thank you, that's great. And, Jen, um, I can talk from a development lens that, you know, uh, there's been quite heavy male participation in the sector traditionally, which is slowly improving, but do you think that's sort of led to any um, missed opportunities um, and that, you know, anything we can correct now in terms of... Um, from a policy perspective or from a development perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think design is not unique, right? We understand that diversity in any workplace or in any sector is not only, you know, um, there's a moral dimension to it um, in terms of inclusivity, but it's also good business um, and it means that it accurately represents the need of a diverse cohort and we all need housing, so therefore the response should be equally diverse. I think where it gets interesting where gender interacts with design in that respect is some things have really changed. Um, as Jeanette's alluded to, we've got more people living alone than ever before, so single parent households or sole parent households um, and single people or single person um, households more so than ever now exist. But funnily enough, some things haven't changed. So we still see that whilst women participating in the workforce more than they ever have before, they still carry the lion's share of care responsibilities, both for children um, and in other family structures. Um, and similarly, I would say that design's changing um, architecturally to address that need. So smaller dwellings are coming onto the market to address a need. Um, higher density housing, etc. But some of the financial tools are lagging. So it's still difficult to get a loan for an apartment less than 45 square metres. It's really difficult to get a loan as a woman over 55. So some of the other systems that sit around housing and access to it um, aren't really moving with the times fast enough to actually create access and opportunities for women, I think. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So the products are sort of starting to, the, the built form product itself is starting to catch up somewhat, but the entry, the barrier to entry is not necessarily so much catching up the way it needs to, especially for women. Um, thank you. In terms of design, it'd be great to hear um, from any of you who'd like to jump in. What do spaces for women look and feel like to you? Um, so I think, you know, what Jen has said is the diversity is, it's really huge uh, of what spaces look like for women. So um, depending on whether they have family or they're single, uh, if they're single, I think it's what the research that, some of the research that we've done is absolutely women value private space. They really value that. They really value the private space where they, as I, as I was alluding to before, um, they can do some activities within their um, own private space as, uh, yeah, so that they've actually got room to do that. The, the, and it depends very much on age as well, I think. So, Jen, when you talk about the 45 you know, square metre for, for us. For many of our women, that would be too small because uh, we're talking about women who don't have a lot of money, can't get out very much uh, to, you know, they're not working necessarily. And so they need more space within their own home. But that's the diversity, I suppose, that you need. If you've got somebody who's working and they're out of their, their home, um, you know, for eight hours a day or more, well, then... They don't need so much space necessarily. But if you're living uh, and you don't have the funds to, to go out for dinner regularly and so forth, this is where you're living. I think you need a larger space. For the older women I was talking about, if they want to look after their grandchildren, if they want to do other activities. But then I think also having community is good. So having your private space, but also having access to community. Now, whether that could be community within... Um, uh, an apartment development like Nightingale. I mean, we have some women living in the Nightingale apartments and it's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful for them to have that community around them. They've got their private space, but then they can go out and have that community around them, which is very supportive. Some women don't necessarily want that as well, um, but their, their homes need to be located well. So it, for them, it might be, well, I've got access to the library or I've got access to... Uh, the senior sits club or I've got access to the neighbourhood house. So the location is really important that they're not, their home is not isolated out um, where they can't get public transport or access to those other sorts of facilities. So there's lots of things to take into consideration. And then for women with children, obviously location is really important too. If it's got access to the schools, to the childcare, um, you know, to the health facilities that they need to have access to. So that location is really important uh, as well as the design, I suppose. Yeah. That's great. And that uh, I was talking to one of our team members about one of the um, ladies living in our uh, SCHP unit in one of our developments. And she was saying whilst that lady had been housed up until that point, it had been in very um, remote and regional accommodation that was not um, where she grew up. It wasn't where her networks were and she was incredibly isolated. And so for her to be back in Brunswick in this case um, just meant the world to her. And she, you know, just being able to go to the museum or the NGV or things that she grew up in and knew was, you know, so enriching for her and I thought that was something I hadn't thought about and I thought that was very, yeah, a good point to reflect on. Mm. Any Anything else on, on that point? 
Yeah, I think the location topic is a really important one and something I've been super interested in for a long time um, and we're working with the state government now through the Future Homes Initiative, um, which is about trying to unlock more housing and more development potential within Melbourne's middle ring, like the established suburbs, like where there is access to public transport and schools and amenity. Um, I think that could go a really long way in terms of providing more equitable and more affordable housing for Melbourne. It's, it's kind of a shame that still the most affordable housing is at the growth corridors um, or small apartments, the very inner urban. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a role for city planning to play in enabling more and better housing um, for women. I very much agree and it's interesting on that point of growth corridor housing um, which has traditionally been one form of affordable housing that at the moment has proven to be very unaffordable and can no longer be accessed by people who could previously afford um, to buy a house and land package for example in a growth corridor so there's um, another cohort of people who, who are needing homes that, that can't access them which takes us um, to the next point which is access to housing and sort of the key barriers um, that we see. And one of them, Jen, you, you had already sort of spoken to, but um, the micro and macro, macro financial systems I thought was interesting. Um, any thoughts on how that could be improved? Yeah, many. I'm probably going to bore half the audience to death if I go into it too much. Um, I think, sorry, just to round out that that previous point in terms of um, women being included in the design, I think we can't have a conversation about that without looking at other identity factors. So someone's cultural background, family structure, all those things, um, their personal history, their experience, their lived experience, all of that dovetails into what's an appropriate housing response. Um, and I suppose one of the big things that I saw um, in the six countries I visited as part of my Churchill Fellowship was probably one thing that... Um, we could really take away from these other contexts is balancing participation from people that are going to live in a dwelling, but also protecting them a little bit from the risks of development. And so I thought what I saw really, really well done there was community groups or grassroots groups working with developers um, and the developers were kind of carrying the lion's share of risk. Um, they also have the skill to complete the development, but there was an opportunity for co-design um, and it was limited inherently because it had to be financially viable, um, but it was it kind of beautifully unlocked this capacity. And that's probably one thing I think we could be doing a lot better in Australia. There are some amazing groups, community groups, and I know that I know that Lisa and Jeanette know those groups. Like, and they, at the moment, they're kind of underutilised um, and nobody knows what they need from housing more than the people that are going to live in it. Um, and that doesn't mean it, it can't necessarily go through a, a process of evolution to be financially viable um, and to be inclusive and to kind of include other groups. But um, probably that was one thing that I think we could be doing a lot better. Um, groups like um, Wink, um, who were trying to... Um, it's a, a group of older women who are trying to develop a co-housing project in Castlemaine um, that, that can't get funding at the moment. They can't get um, the finance to deliver the building. So I think, in, sorry, coming full circle to the macro conditions, some of these bespoke financial products, like how do you get the, the debt to, de to deliver a building, unless you kind of follow that traditional developer pathway and you've got a history of um, developing projects on time and on budget, you've got a depth of profit that you can dig into if things go wrong um, to, to pay the bank back, um, you can't get the development finance. And so a lot of these projects just don't get off the ground. Um, so yeah, I suppose a little bit more of a balanced risk profile, seeing that 
um, untested models are inherently risky. Um, but I think we could do, be doing a lot to manage that risk and encourage um, a diversity of housing responses. To me, success would look like um, housing for older women, um, you know, housing for single parents, but like all mixed ideally, but um, really looking at the identity factors other than, than just one kind of profile, which is I identify as a woman, you know. I think there's just, there's a whole polyphony of voices out there that we lose um, if, if we don't kind of aim to get that kind of proliferation and diversity happening in the long term. I think that's really insightful. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. Sorry, I was a bit of a ramble. No, no, that was great. And um, yeah, I was listening to um, some talks the other day and it sounds like, you know, models we can look at a, you know, larger scale build to rent that is not necessarily targeted to the premium, you know, sort of cohorts. It's more about um, affor affordability and then that, the reason that's been more successful in the US is because of sustained and ongoing um, certainty around government um, financial intervention. Um, even, you know, down to consistent tax um, laws around that and things like that. So, um, that certainly sounds like it's um, a big one. And Jeanette, from your perspective, is there um, anything that could be helpful or, you know, government can do better to provide that certainty? There's enormous amount <laughs> that government could do. Um, and it was really interesting when, uh, it's many years ago, when the build-to-rent options were being um, talked about in uh, in Australia and I went along to a session where there was um, someone from America and someone from England talking about the build to rent and you know saying yes well it could be affordable as well and as as they were presenting I'm thinking well how how can it be affordable uh, so I put up my hand and said so how is there affordable um, options in this build to rent and they said oh well government provides subsidy <laughs> so I just went, all right, okay. So you most, most of your build to rent options are actually not affordable. Uh, they're high end. Uh, and, you know, in America, they, they um, meet uh, the requirements of corporates who have, uh, are working in the Silicon Valley and providing homes for their uh, employees. So um, if, if we're going to get build to rent to, to stack up, absolutely, there needs to be some um, government uh, investment to be able to do that or there has to be a requirement uh, by government that the build to rent operators will include so much of social housing or affordable housing within their developments to be allowed to get the planning permits that they require. I mean um, uh, I think when you introduced me you said I've been around for a long time. I have been around for a long time <laughs> and uh, I've been you know mandatory inclusion rezoning which you know I don't know 30 40 years have we been asking to try and get some mandatory inclusion rezoning where it's absolutely required that if any new development happens whether that be out near greenfields whether it be in uh, your apartments that so much must be contributing to affordable and social housing and you know there's there's many tax options out there that government could do. You know, and one of the other big things, you know, that I know will, I, I feel like now, having been around for so long, will never happen, get rid of negative gearing so that the money that goes towards negative gearing at the moment can be put in and contributed to providing social and affordable housing. It's a huge amount of money that could go. And, you know, maybe there needs to be some grandfathering and so forth of, you know, people that have properties. Or maybe there needs to be options where people can have one property that they can negative gear, but not 20. 
that they can negatively gear. So I just think there's many options that um, government can look at. We talk about um, the uh, investment from superannuation funds. Superannuation funds have been investing in residential property overseas for years because governments overseas have been providing tax incentives for them to do so. That, again, 30 years ago, I sat in a, a session where Ahuri was presenting, saying there's a whole lot of money out there that we could be accessing to be delivering affordable housing, superannuation funds, but you need government to be providing some sort of aggregator, some sort of incentive. We all want our super funds to be earning the, the, you know, the returns that they need to earn for our retirement. So we don't, you know, that they need to be topped up. But it's still a cheaper option for government to do that than providing all of the money, all of the capital funds. So, yes, there's a lot. <laughs> That's great. And it might not be the most exciting topic for everyone, but governments make decisions based on the pressure they receive from their constituents. So it is really worth reflecting on. Um, Namisha, sorry, can I just yes, jump in and say two things because they're deeply related to what Jeanette's just said. Firstly, I just want to point out that as Jeanette's kind of picked up on, there are two key tax settings that incentivise investment in housing. And so housing is the single largest asset class in Australia. It's three times the size of the share market. And one in five Australian households own more than one property. So I think we just need to be aware that there's plenty of housing out there, but maybe just not an equitable distribution of ownership. The other major tax setting beside negative gearing is capital gains tax concessions. And it's just really important to note that 65 plus percent of capital gains tax, tax concessions are claimed by men. So when we look at the financial systems, there's a kind of a, an inertia or a perpetual mo motion to these, to these settings and they actually make people that are wealthy wealthier. And we know that unfortunately men have a disproportionate holding of wealth and these settings actually help to maintain that inequity. Um, Secondly, I just want to say, I, I'm no spring chicken, but um, I hear you say that these discussions have been going on for decades and it, it saddens me, you know. Um, I think when I went on my Churchill Fellowship and I went to Central Europe, a couple of the voices I've heard coming back are, oh, that happens in Denmark or that happens in, you know, in Helsinki or, you know, in Finland or in the UK even. But in 1940, 40% of housing stock was delivered by the Housing Commission of Victoria. Now we have less than 4% social and affordable housing. And I just want to kind of suggest that a lot of these ideas have existed in Australia and we've actually moved further and further away from them. So it really is an act of remembering um, more than, um, you know, these revolutionary ideas. We're actually often touching on the same ideas decade after decade. So um, I guess my only point to say out to a crowd of people my age in their 30s or younger is we, we can ask for more. You know, I think that this has happened in the past in Australia. It may need to look different in 2023, but um, we have a voice and, and we should be using it because it's not a pie in the sky idea. It's actually uh, something that's happened in, in recent decades in this country and in this city. Sorry, no, Jess. That's great, great reflections. Yeah, very enlightening statistics as well. So, um, I think there is a huge role in addition to government that um, public, private sector can play um, and at Nightingale we try and, you know, chip away at that as best we can. Um, Leanne is working with Nightingale on a project. Um, you can talk to that or just your experiences more broadly in terms of how you think um, pub, private sector can, can do their bit. Yeah, I mean, it, in just talking to that point um, about knowing more about your end user and that's what you can have with more intentional and deliberative communities. I think I definitely really appreciate that about the Nightingale model, that there's a bit more knowledge about who the 
future inhabitant is going to be, like through the intentional communities that are formed. Um, and we found that really, that intel really valuable um, in our design for our building. Um, but yeah, I also want to say just how amazing the experience has been to work with Nightingale. It's been, um, I've, I've worked on larger scale housing projects before where as a woman I haven't always felt as heard or um, haven't always been able to command the kind of authority that I want to have now in running my own practice and it's been an amazing experience just to feel, to work in such a gender balanced team and to feel so supported um, has been amazing. Yeah, it was great, our brief conversation. I guess this is more about um, just gender, being able to influence the design. Um, uh, just that, you know, there was a bit, of, a bit of to and fro between you and some of the architects. Um, the development we're talking about has five different architects with sort of a lead architect and Leanna, one of the architects. So there was a bit of to and fro and it sounds like, you know, between Nightingale and, and yourself, you know, you had a voice and feel like you've really made your mark on that project. So I was so pleased um, to hear that feedback. Um, it's an honour to be part of such a great project. That's great. And feel free, you know, talking a lot about Nightingale, if anyone wants to know more about it afterwards, tap me on the shoulder. Um, moving on to housing equity and intersectionality. Um, so there's obviously barriers faced by women, but also people um, of diverse genders and also um, Indigenous Australians, um, ageing Australians, migrants and various other groups of people. Um, is there any, any thoughts about how we can um, consider that better, I guess, in the um, housing design and development processes? I'd just say I saw some statistics on my desk earlier this week um, from... Um, I'm just going to say it, from Homes Victoria, um, our state authority that's delivering social and affordable housing or the vested power. And currently they're not even collecting data on housing outcomes from people um, that identify as non-binary or gender diverse. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that we've got a, a clear data gap and how can we even begin to quantify um, the issue that we're facing if we're not collecting data to that effect. So um, I can tell you we're advocating for that um, as a at the City of Melbourne after having seen that those statistics. But I think there's a long way to go um, in actually understanding, you know, the lived experience, for example. Um, and that really speaks to the fact that, you know, a, a broader um, lack of acknowledgement, I think, of, of diverse gender and non-binary identities. Um, yeah, I suppose that's my only key contribution at this point. It was a bit sobering to see that. That is, I absolutely. Think, I was just going to say, I think for... Um, Security is just an issue across the across the spectrum. That um, that security in your housing that you actually uh, feel safe and and you are actually safe. So I just think in uh, for for all genders that that is absolutely vital and needs to be taken into consideration uh, in all design aspects. And it may have been uh, at at the WPI lunch yesterday, you sort of mentioned about um, some women being in situations or people being in situations of having to go back into domestic um, violence situations purely from not having a roof over their heads. I thought that was really sobering to think about. Yeah, and, and that's very much a financial issue. I mean, for when we're talking about um, uh, gender inequality uh, that we still face, so it was a 
delayed International Women's Day lunch <laughs> that um, you're referring to. So the issues of gender inequality um, and financial disadvantage that that leads to was being highlighted. And, uh, you know, we, we still talk about the gender pay gap. Why our organisation focuses on women um, is because that gender inequality still exists and that really is very much it results in a financial disadvantage. That financial disadvantage results in women not having <coughs> nearly as much many, uh, money, as you've just highlighted, as men um, for, uh, for their homes, for their housing. So that uh, can be while they're working and while they're not working. So women predominantly still being in the caring roles, whether that be uh, paid or unpaid employment, the caring roles of paid employment are your lower paid roles, they're your part-time roles, they're your casual, casual roles. So women, while they're working, they have less money um, to pay for rent, to, you know, to get into home ownership, um, to put away in savings, superannuation, and, uh, yeah, and, and we can see what's happening with older women and housing and the increasing older women and housing and homelessness. But it's that that whole um, affordability is a really, really big issue for women and that's, that's why we exist, uh, to try and redress that. And just touching on that, uh, everyone's probably heard the statistic but it'd be great to hear a bit more about why um, there is that growing com homelessness cohort um, of w single women, I believe it is over 55, is that right? I suppose it's just <laughs> sort of what I said. So, and, and particularly... Um, for women over 55 at the moment in particular, and we're hoping that it'll change in the future with superannuation and so forth, but until superannuation, compulsory superannuation wasn't even, intro even introduced until the 80s. So we have had women, older women who have been working and their employers may not have even contributed to superannuation. The a whole role of women in society of, yes, they, you know, they did stay home. They are the, the predominant carers in our society. So they took time out of the workforce they work part-time, they weren't uh, putting money away during that time. So when they've come to older age and, you know, if they've been relying on a, a partner to um, support them with their housing, uh, if they've left that partner, whether it be from family violence, whether that partner has passed away, um, whether the woman herself has not partnered but she's lost her job, she hasn't had the money, she hasn't put that away um, because... Uh, you know, it just hasn't been in the position to do so. So, gets to older age and um, just doesn't have that savings, doesn't have that superannuation to be able to pay for her housing. The private rental market, as we know, is just ridiculously unaffordable. There's not enough social community housing out there for them. Uh, and so, yes, uh, women over 55, they are the fastest growing cohort of, of um, homelessness in our society. Uh, so, you know, and it's that whole, that whole trajectory throughout their whole lifestyle that has led to that. And as I said, many of them will have been in, um, even the paid positions they've been in, would have often been those lower paid positions as well. Can I just uh, a compliment? Jeanette's described it beautifully, um, but I just have to give myself a bit of a plug here, shamelessly. Um, I've just recently, recently written my Churchill report that you can find online. Um, but one of the things I mentioned is that this, this idea, as Jeanette's alluded to, is that there's these accumulated disadvantages throughout a woman's lifetime that mean that um, often 
kind of unfortunately it comes to fruit that housing insecurity and homelessness is experienced but really um, it is about a lifetime of inequality or inequity that leads to that fi financially speaking. Um, for example, um, eight out of 10 households, um, single parent families, it's a woman who's heading households um, and almost half of all single parent or sole parent households live below the poverty line in Australia, 44%. Um, in those households where it's a mother rather than a father that's heading the households, they're twice as likely to live below the poverty line. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that's obviously much earlier in your life than coming into retirement age, um, but that starts to contribute to a long-term trajectory of housing insecurity um, or an experience of homelessness. There was a great interview on RM Breakfast yesterday with Patricia Carvalis, Sam Moyston, who's the chair of the um, Women's Economic Equality um, Advisory Board that's advising the Commonwealth Government on the next federal budget. And, you know, she really pointed out that in a household where it's a sole parent, um, when a child turns eight, you go from a parent payment onto job seeker and you go from getting $900 um, a fortnight to $700 a fortnight overnight. So 25% of your payment is gone. Um, and you've now got a child that's older and likely has higher expenses just to, you know, go to school camp or to be fed. Um, and we really don't give women an opportunity to um, get back into the workforce in a graduated way or um, to take on some work because their payment will be cut. So um, really that's a payment, um, like that's a, a cliff that women fall off um, and they have to support their children as well. So I think any discussion of this isn't really isolated to women, but is also a question of generational opportunity and um, class mobility um, because you know, women are generally the carers. Um, family violence is also the single largest cause of homelessness in Australia and women and children are overwhelmingly the victims of that. Um, yeah, almost a quarter of people who are experiencing homelessness are under the age of 18. Like it's not, it's not a, a phenomenon unique to, to older people. We've set up our financial system so that own, home ownership or owning, own a, owning a housing asset is the single kind of greatest determinant to a secure retirement, not having superannuation. So if you find yourself outside of that exclusive club, um, you know, it's, it's cold out there, basically. Um, yeah, so I think that, that whilst it's important to acknowledge that sobering statistic, it really is a manifestation of a whole lifetime of financial systems that's, that set women up uniquely challenged, really, to meet their needs. Um, and really proliferate often in later life. It's been estimated that a woman would have to um, work at 65 years of age, would have to work an additional 15 years to get the same superannuation balance as a man. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to working till I'm 90. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are some really sobering but incredibly important um, statistics and conversation points. So. Um, yeah, it really does highlight the magnitude of the challenges um, that are being faced both by women but also intergenerationally and in terms of intersectionality as well. So that's um, a great, great discussion there. And I imagine it's also, speaking of the over 55 um, lens, also probably pretty difficult to get access to appropriate housing um, that meets the needs of ageing people as well. Um, from a design perspective, there are sort of standards that, that are out there to, to sort of address that. Any any thoughts or comments, I guess, about how those are being used and how they kind of intersect with affordability because they do often lead to sort of larger spaces? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so there's the livable housing design guidelines, um, which relates to accessibility and um, focuses on sort of minimum dimensions of a room, but also circulation space and uh, as well as bathrooms. and 
that's something that we've um, incorporated in all of our social housing design and I think that's really important. But it definitely does put a lot of strain on the floor plan. It um, particularly means that bathrooms do become a bit bigger and when you have the constraints of sort of a maximum floor area and yield and feasibility, we've you know ended up with some apartments where we've, yes, we have an accessible bathroom, but the living space sort of is comes at a, is smaller because of that, um, which is a bit strange and, and, and cha it's challenging, but um, I do think it is important and um, a lot more people, I mean, we also have an aging population and more people, uh, need, people need to be able to age in place in their house, so, um, it's a, it's a challenge, but an important one. Um, and I recently also saw the Older Women's Housing Design Guidelines, which was produced by, um, was it Sophie Deering? Sophie yeah, and Sophie Sam Darling. Darling. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which was At Monash. Yeah. really insightful and, and such a, a great um, manual that more people should look at it, applicable to um, all great housing, I think. Um, and and it, it's great that it's also evidence-based, uh, I think. Um, it it's yeah. was research very much from lived experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's no, talking it's to older women. It's it's terrific. Yeah. yeah, I'd encourage anyone to actually look it up because yeah. it's free. It's the Older Women's Design Guide developed by Monash. Um, I think oh, I'm trying to think of the lab there. The I have a copy in a handbag that I can show people. I love that. <laughs> it's like the hot sauce in your handbag is the Older Women's Design Guideline. Um, but the great thing about it, I think, is that like design is really accessible and you read it and you're like, man, I want to live here. This is great. Like um, yeah. the things they've picked yeah. up and the feedback that they've got is so useful. And I think my role at the moment in the city of Melbourne, I have the kind of, I'm fortunate enough to interact with a whole lot of people across the development sector from private to CHPs or, and so many, so many people I meet, they have their heart in the right place. They just don't know quite how to do it. And so I think design guide like, guides like that, if you don't have the budget to do like a co-design, full co-design program, that is a bit of a shortcut where you know you're at least thinking or your designer's thinking about your cohort in a more detailed way. So um, yeah, and I also think design's much more enjoyable than talking about finance. So um, yeah, check it out. It's good, good document. It's very true. <laughs> um, thinking about solutions to providing secured housing tenures that meet women's needs, we've certainly spoken to this in, in various ways um, in the discussion so far. Uh, some points I had just to throw around were um, destigmatization of social and affordable housing, um, improving rental laws to try and um, refocus on, I guess, the fact that rental will become a bigger and bigger part of the market um, for housing rather than traditional ownership um, and leveraging, I guess, the sort of um, sort of a ESG is a bit of almost like a hype word for some big corporates out there and super funds and things like that. So, so it's a bit in that, but any, any thoughts on how we... Um, yeah, how we start to think about solutions for secured tenure housing for women. Yeah, sorry, I feel like I'm hogging the mic, um, but I, I, I love this question. Um, firstly, I think um, you're so right about broadening conceptions of social and affordable housing. Um, Again, like historically in Australia and in, in the six countries I visited as part of, part of my Churchill, affordable housing, there are different options that exist and they're subsidised to a different extent. 
but they're really for people from very low income to moderate income. And I think in Australia we think about it as people who are either already homelessness, experiencing homelessness or in extreme housing insecurity. And we really need to be thinking about social and affordable housing as a much broader spectrum. Um, yeah, the amount we have in Australia is hovering at about 4%. Um, the cities I visited, it was 24 to 45%. Um, and that, again, is, is closer to what it was historically here in the state of Victoria. Um, I think if we recognise if we can offer people housing solutions before they're at that dire end of the housing spectrum, it costs us less as in the public purse to house them. And it means that they, they also avoid avoidable hardship. Like the, the, the human cost of this is real. Like it interacts with mental health, people can't participate in work because they're experiencing housing insecurity, they're looking for housing, they're going to rentals, they're filling out endless applications. So um, anywhere we can stop them before they're experiencing acute homelessness will be both financially effective <laughs> and the moral thing to do. Um, I also think one thing that we're working really, really hard, and I'm so glad that my boss Joe is here from the City of Melbourne. What we're working hard to do here uh, in the City of Melbourne is to look at long-term rental options. We're telling people, oh, well, you're not going to be able to access ownership anymore, so, you know, we're going to try and make rental work for you. But developers who are putting in social and affordable housing generally are only bound to do it for 10 to 15 years. And you know, that's not even a kid's lifetime in school. Like, how can you stay in your community if that tenure is only available for 10 or 15 years? We need it to be locked in for the lifetime of the building. Um, so we're really working. How do we make sure that those housing outcomes are available um, in, into perpetuity? And when that building is redeveloped, how do we make sure it's coming back in any renewal? Um, you know, 60% of people plus rent in the city of Melbourne. And that's the opposite of the national population where 60% of people own property. So we need to come up with a unique system in our municipality that addresses renters. Um, and I think, you know, rental tenure laws in Australia are some of the laxest in the world. You can, there are really broad grounds for eviction on the private rental market. You can increase the rent as much and as often as you like. Um, we really need to see a viable option for renters because right now ownership is held on a pedestal because we've framed it that way over the last 50 years, but it's also the only way you actually have any sense of housing security. So no wonder we all idealise it. Um, we really need to make renting a viable option for more people. The interesting thing is the government could do that without spending a penny. I mean, it's not actually about subsidy. We could just change rental laws at a state and territory level and we could help a lot of people that are renting in the private rental market tomorrow. That's huge. Huge to think about that as, as such a simple solution um, in a way. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to poach a statistic that you might have been at the same um, talk I was listening to, Jeanette, but I think it was something along the lines of for every dollar a CHP spends on affordable housing, it sort of saves the government multiple dollars of that. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, for our, for our organisation, uh, so it was a, we've undertaken a social return on investment, um, which measures the social and the economic benefit. And for every dollar invested, it was creating the value of just over $11. So the savings and that, you know, the measurement um, is, is wide ranging, but it's, uh, um, you know, to me, it's just no-brainer, really. If, you, if you're providing somebody with a safe, secure, affordable home, does that result in improved mental health, improved physical health, improved um, employment opportunities, training? You know, the, the, it was also measuring the outcomes of the children, uh, educational outcomes of the children, even just that social inclusion that people... So, you know, it, it ranged from 
the individual benefits of the women and children in our homes, but also the savings to government um, in the fact that, uh, you know, women were getting employment and paying taxes. Uh, women were no longer uh, such a burden on their health system. Um, you know, the children were no longer needing special um, aids in their schools to assist them with their schoolwork. whole range of uh, savings and benefits as outcomes. So, you know, a safe, secure, affordable home, it's absolutely the platform, the springboard that people get on with their lives. And, uh, you know, in the homes we see uh, that we provide, it happens every single day that that's what happens. Um, but, you know, back to the, back to the, you know, rental and so forth, I think you were alluding to it before, Jen, you know, back in the 40s, I think public housing was actually established to be a bit of a competitor to private rental, that it would, that there would be a mixture of, yes, people who needed sub really subsidised homes, but then the affordable, but then, you know, it was actually competitive that people who might need market, just market rent would be there and that would cross-subsidise the, the, um, the private, uh, the, the, the uh, public housing or the, the, uh, what you know, people refer to often as welfare housing, but um, but they just got rid of all of that because they didn't they didn't maintain it well enough, they didn't build enough, and so and home ownership became the goal. <laughs> yes, it just we've talked a lot about more f about financial and economics today than I expected to, but to me that just seems to make a lot of sense, and it's hard to imagine why we're having this conversation up here and you know not um, on the political forums, which, yes, it is discussed, but certainly not in this context, in my opinion. But anyway, maybe it is at the City of Melbourne. <laughs> um, move, moving along, I just wanted to talk about that point, uh, sort of about destigmatisation, and just sort of share a story, um, which is relating to sort of Nightingale and the way that we sort of salt and pepper the CHPs in, in the buildings. And coming from a traditional development background prior to Nightingale, I came along and went, oh, people are happy to buy, you know, apartments and have people in CHP apartments in their building. I'm amazed. I'm really pleased that works, but I'm surprised. Um, and then building, visiting one of our buildings recently in Adelaide, in Bowdoin, where it was um, recently handed over and we were doing a walk. Um, we were actually doing a a walk with the residents, just sort of a bit of a handover walk, talking about how everything works. And one of the comments was, when are, when are the rest of our the residents moving in? Where where are these residents? And these were the CHP residents. And they were quite upset that their, the rest of their community wasn't there. And that was just so beautiful to see that highlighted back to me of how much um, people who are really genuinely focused on building community um, can really look at community in all different ways if their heart's in the right place and if they're well educated and you know the community our amazing community team um, do a great job of uh, integrating all members of the community with monthly sessions leading up to the actual um, settlement and move in of those um, apartments so the community is already really largely built by the time they get together and I can't think of a better way than you know of destigmatizing than actually spending time together and getting to know each other I thought that was it's just been beautiful to see that um, all right well we are shortly going to we've got about 10 minutes before we hand over to audience questions um, so I wanted to end on and just give you each a bit of time to sort of end on um, one final question from me which is what we can all do to help achieve um, gender equity and inclusivity in regards to the housing continuum. 
maybe I'll, because I'm an architect and a female, maybe I'll talk more to that angle. But um, yeah, I think the importance of having gender balanced project teams, and like I know architecture is often closely connected to construction and other consultants, but um, I think it really goes a long way to have a focus on having a, a gender diverse and culturally diverse project team working on projects and um, helps women to feel more comfortable and um, contribute more meaningfully and it, it makes for a better outcome. Um, anyway, it really does. Um, I think that's a really important one. Maybe I'll leave it there. Mm. Oh, I couldn't, on that yeah. point, I yeah. couldn't, couldn't agree more. I yeah. spent time living in social housing when I was a kid. Um, I'm from a diverse background. I'm a woman. And, yeah, I feel like I've had a lot to say throughout my career. And it really has given, I felt, given me a really unique perspective um, in the way that people can be housed and the challenge that is faced in the inner suburbs, outer suburbs. I've sort of lived a bit of everywhere. And, mm. yeah, I think it really goes a long way. Mm. And maybe one other thing I would say is like there are so many architects like myself who would just love to be involved in a project with old, older women's housing or more social housing. We're just you, thousands of us will be lining up the door to deliver projects like that. It's really meaningful work, and um, there's just not enough funding opportunities. Mm. It's really a shame. I think there needs to be more leadership in government. We need to start lobbying. We yeah. all we all need to start lobbying. Jeanette. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> There's not nearly enough funding opportunities. But I, I think um, what we've, we've talked about is, yes, you know, speaking to, to women generally, there's such a diverse, you know, thinking that, oh, well, we just developed this for women because that's what women want. So there's a diverse range of, of um, needs and wants out there. And depending on age, depending on a family composition, depending on personal desires. So um, when you were talking before about WINK and because our organisation's been involved in, it's Women in Co-Housing and it's a project for older women in housing where they absolutely would have their private space but very much a community. So they'll have um, gardening space, they'll have community uh, kitchen, they'll have their own kitchen as well but community kitchen and dining room where they can um, have meals together, uh, activities rooms, beautiful community to be um, developed for the women who want that. I was actually in a, a session once where it was being outlined about the co-housing um, facility that this was going to be and then I was moved into another small group and one of the women in that group said to me, I'm really, really pleased I heard about co-housing because now I know where I don't want to live. So, you know, it's, it's absolutely, there's such a variety out there. She clearly wanted to live... Um, you know, with her own private space, and I think she wanted to live with younger people as well. You know, not in a not in a uh, co-housing uh, situation, just with older women. But um, one thing that we've found uh, for uh, women with younger children is uh, having a bath is really important for them because to, to bath the children when they're when they're little, which you know, so many apartments these days. Uh, only have the shower and that's they've you know some women find that really difficult with their children but there's yeah there's a great variety out there and I think that continual conversation um, with women to educate us all the work that Sophie Dyron's done in relation to um, older women is terrific but uh, yeah I think there's you know there's lots and lots out there and also in changing you know the 
obviously your, your life changes. So from what you need when you're younger to what you might need when you're older, the smaller space when you're younger if you are working, terrific. But then when you're older, you know, a larger space is probably more desirable. Mm, that's great. So access to flexible housing that can meet changing needs and um, listening to women asking questions and being curious to really understand more about what the individual needs are rather than uh, one size fits all approach. Yeah. And just uh, which Nightingale does, which is terrific, and this isn't necessarily just for women, but uh, clearly that sustainability which contributes, you know, from our point of view to affordability. Rent is one thing, but utility costs and so forth is something else as well that really contributes to affordability. So that's very important. That's a good point and it's something I didn't want to, I guess, overtake the conversation today because it's a big topic in and of itself, but it's obviously something we're really passionate um, at Nightingale about is, is sustainability and uh, particularly from that lens and I think that's incredibly important for the CHPs as well to reduce the ongoing utilities costs, cost of power, um, cost of internet, cost of, you know, um, all those those things involved which can be incredibly expensive um, and often get missed in the focus on the initial capital investments. Mm. Jen, your thoughts on what we can all do? Yeah, um, I think just for everybody here, like on an individual level, it's just an acknowledgement that life is really busy and we all have lots of things to think about all the time. My call to arms, I guess, would just be to think about this topic in some way and how it interacts with your life. So if you see a social and affordable housing project in your neighbourhood, don't just think about not opposing it potentially, but if you do have concerns about it, reach out to the community contact, you know, talk about the, the stigma or your feeling that it's not appropriate or safe for your neighbourhood. Like talk it through with someone because I'm telling you the person at the other end has given it lots of thought and that may actually change your opinion about it. On a personal level... I would say having grown up with very little kind of financial literacy in my family, never having a belief that I would have housing security myself, think about it for you too, especially if you're a younger person and chart a course for yourself, whatever that might look like, like give it some serious thought. Um, I know so many incredibly passionate people in this space. If you have a question, if you have a piece of land, if you have some money you want to loan to our housing project, get in touch with me because I'm telling you there is some way that you can interact even if you don't have any financial capacity to do so. And also I would just ask if you have concerns about government involvement in delivering housing, whether that's as a local government, state or federal, interrogate that, reach out to someone like me um, and we can have a conversation about it because I think we have to acknowledge that unless we address this problem and it's only getting worse, um, it's not just about individual tragedy or avoidable hardship. It's going to destabilise our society um, and not to be doom and gloom, but every positive step we can take can, can have an incredible impact. Like one part of kind of starting at the bottom in a little bit of a way is that like everything we do can be profoundly impactful. So it's a really kind of encouraging time to be in this space because every step, every innovative project that Jeanette and her team deliver, um, including older women's co-housing and uh, older women's housing in Beaconsfield, amazing project, um, you know, is, can contribute. So yeah, please engage with us in your busy lives. Thank you. The, um, the passion on the stage today is very clear and I'm so grateful for it and it's infectious. So thank you. Um, and I've learnt heaps, so I hope you all have too. Um, and we'd love to throw to the audience for any questions now. I'm going to give you a mic, one sec.
I'm so sorry. Could you? Did you hear that? Uh, I did. So, oh, um, with just the idea of a bit of a pay it forward system, um, whereby when you buy a house or or via an owners corp or you know some way through the the system, and I know a few exist, but I reckon you know more about it, Jen. So I have an example. <laughs> yeah, one of the countries I went to as part of my Churchill um, fellowship was Switzerland, and it's quite funny because Switzerland's very similar to Australia in a way, i.e., we don't like. Um, putting regulations on the property market. We like letting the private sector rip. Um, and it's very similar in Switzerland. Um, but one thing they do have is cooperative housing. Um, and sometimes it's criticised because um, it's kind of thought of as um, affordable housing for the middle class and it doesn't actually address the people who need housing the most. But there's this great new wave of cooperatives that actually have like 20% housing for people in very low income. So you get this great thing where people who maybe have, um, a, you know, a lot greater personal finances or more discretionary spending help to subsidise their neighbours. And part of it is they, they, I've visited two cooperatives that have this, and it's called a spirit fund. And it basically you submit to, you know, privately or like um, anonymously your household income. And a percentage of that is given to this spirit fund by every household. So it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a small percentage of what it is that your household has. And that is then used to cross-subsidise the very low-income households. So they're tenure-blind. Nobody knows where the money comes from and goes to, but effectively you're cross-subsidising your neighbours to help them meet their living costs in a totally confidential way. And I love that because I was like, I'd absolutely love that. And part of it is that I just have to go out and actively do that if I'm donating money or... But if it's part of my weekly budget, you know, I don't really feel it. And it's a tax-deductible donation. So it's like you know, what, what's not great about that? So there's some really interesting models about exactly what you're talking about. Um, I'm not sure if people are aware of a model that we actually have in Australia, Homes for Homes. Yeah. 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 So, so, so Homes for Homes is where um, when you go to sell your house, at, you know, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. I, I think it, I'm not even sure if it's 0.1% of, of the sale price goes to into Homes for Homes. It's a social enterprise that was actually established by the big issue. So um, the, you, you can do it as an individual. You can uh, register your house. So when, uh, when you sell it, that's what happens. And then it stays on that. So, you know, the person who buys the house can have it removed or it can just happen, keep, keep going. But the best um, situation, uh, they have partnerships with developers. So when developers actually build um, uh, huge developments, obviously the amount that comes from the developer is much more significant than an individual person who just sells a house. So that then um, goes into the fund and then uh, community housing organisations or other not-for-profits as well can apply to that fund to contribute to building um, housing, affordable housing, social and affordable housing. So everyone should register their house if they're a homeowner <laughs> with Homes for Homes so that that would happen and encourage any developers to do so as well. It's a great question. Thank you. And at Nightingale, we also, um, through various mechanisms, look for opportunities to um, donate to Pay the Rent, um, which is a First Nations charity, which is about um, recognising that providing homes or building homes on land that is stolen land um, needs to be paid for or should be paid for. And so that's something we're, we're a big supporter of as well. Question?
Hello? Okay. Firstly, thank you so much for all uh, your contributions today. I found it incredibly valuable. Uh, on a practical basis, so as an architect designing houses, single dwellings usually, or doing alterations, um, mostly for families and couples, on a practical level, do you have any suggestions as to ways I might encourage women to think about their needs and the, the needs of their um, young daughters or teenage girls um, to provide for them and meet their needs on a, on a sort of ongoing basis within a traditional home. Mm. So, for example, uh, that need for private space that you said women value um, that's something I've been thinking about for a, for a while when talking to my clients. Um, I'm not sure about girls uh, and, and what to encourage there. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, sort of, uh, how would you say, surveillance of, of girls and keeping them in check. Um, so it's quite hard to uh, provide for privacy, uh, for example. Um, but I'd be really interested to hear from a home design perspective on a practical level if there's anything you think um, might actually help to meet women's and girls' needs. Um, I was going to say I'll, I'll throw to Lisa, but just one, one comment from my own personal life is my eldest child, my stepchild, um, is non-binary and going through that transition and not having a private bathroom, um, it's shared with, with our son, so it's sort of private, but, you know, it would have been great for them to be able to have that extra space and it's something that I reflect on as well and I think that's a really great question which Lisa's probably better equipped to answer. I don't know about that. Um, no, I was just thinking as you were asking that, I mean, and we spoke about it a bit today, but, um, you know, obviously family circumstances change and children grow older and leave the house. And um, I think in a traditional house, in terms of design, if there could be an attention to um, the multifunctionality of, of certain rooms, so maybe what is, I don't know, a child's bedroom now, um, has qualities and properties to be easily adapted to a study in the future or a completely different room or um, to give consideration to the connection, interconnection of different rooms so that there's just um, more multifunctionality and rooms are not mo monofunctional could be one important aspect, I think. I think also just the, it's beautifully put, but I think also just, um, co-design like asking young women I think about if somebody provided me that opportunity as a client today I'd be bowled over but like just to consult young women in that like to think about the you know that authorial opportunity is absolutely mind-blowing I, I would think just just that would you know regardless of the built form outcome would be an incredible opportunity I'm very excited by your work I'm going to talk to you after yeah that's great the my other thoughts are you know it's if possible, um, access to your own entry, for example, when you're old enough to be able to feel like you can come and go, go as you please. I think that would be, my kids um, would certainly love that. And, you know, access to private outdoor space, again, just to give that sense of ownership and, and separateness from the family, I think would be amazing. But it depends on your space. Yeah. 
It reminds me, it's funny, my sister and I used to um, have to climb down the balcony of my sister's room to sneak out of the house to go out at night. So I think <laughs> for teenage daughters, um, you don't exactly. want your teenagers climbing <laughs> off the balcony to get out. Easier Very escape true. route. Very true. <laughs> I see a hand there. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Um, really fascinating conversation. I want to extend that a little bit more too. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, lived experience of older women and the challenges that we're facing as we age in terms of housing. I'm also wondering if we're challenging the boundaries around young people's homelessness and to try to take that extension of thinking about housing for young people within that family structure, which is kind of how you responded to that question. Are we also looking at ways that we provide housing for young women who the family home is not the best space for them to be in, but to, to capture that, you know, how do we shift housing moving forward that recognises the challenges and the different generational sort of expectations, the impact and the, the ongoing sort of lag of COVID and what we're seeing that in terms of moving and transitioning from youth into adulthood. So I'd be really excited to hear if they, you know those, those opportunities to see how can we provide housing for young people that addresses things like privacy, individual spaces, but also that sense of community in local spaces and places that, again, enable them, as you talked earlier about, those connections to, to systems and structures that exist within our society. So I'm also interested to hear if there's anything evolving in that space. There's um, an organisation called Kids Undercover, um, and they are actually... Uh, for, very much for teenagers, you know, um, for homes that are getting a bit too small, uh, for particularly if, you know, kids want to continue study and so forth, and they actually build self-contained units in um, backyards. So where it's a family where, you know, it's, it's a good family, not a dysfunctional family, but they just need more space, they actually can do it in their current family home, where um, it's a family where you know, the environment hasn't been so positive, then they might do it in somebody else's place in their backyard. Um, and so they'll, they'll get support of another family. Uh, so that's, that's just one option. And uh, they've been around for quite some time and uh, have delivered a lot, a lot of, um, uh, I don't know what you refer to them, bungalows or whatever, but they are actually self-contained um, and give them that privacy, give them that space that can assist you need to find um, homes, though, that have that, you know, the space to be able to put that, that uh, um, bungalow or, or little unit in the backyard. Yeah. But that's, that's just one option. I think um, at the moment what we're seeing in Australia, because we've got such little social and affordable housing, I've mentioned a few times, um, a lot of the policy making is quite reactionary. So, you know, um, you might have heard that um, the Housing Australia Future Fund announced by the Commonwealth Government, 30,000 homes over the next five years, 4,000 of those for women and children. And we welcome that, that's a fantastic announcement, but it doesn't even come close to addressing the growing need. And so I think that, so I mentioned that because I think a lot of the responses that we're seeing now you know, equally around the statistic of older women experiencing homelessness, important, um, you know, sobering, but really like the tip of the iceberg in, in terms of the issue that we're actually facing because there's all these structural issues that are leading to that outcome. What I've found from the Churchill research is that a lot of the 
legislation, um, the stakeholders like registered housing associations or community housing providers, they all exist here. What we've kind of got is like a beautiful fire that's all set up, like the, the kindling's in there, the bigger logs, but we've starved it of oxygen. And, you know, and as a result, we can't have a fire. And that oxygen's money. We haven't given enough money to the sector. We're spending a lot on housing, but rather inefficiently on things like subsidies for people to access home ownership. Or... So I guess what is a long-winded way of saying is that as a result, we're getting these really specialised responses, housing for older women, housing for young people, but we're not getting a lot of that mixing and that maturity and these like quite interesting models that can emerge when they come together and they're cross-subsidised and, you know, young people can help older residents and um, they can live in dwellings that don't need um, a lift, for example, but et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's some great kind of um, compatibilities there. I think that'll come with time. We just need to give ourselves more time. In the countries that I visited where there's like a longer history of subsidy, they're starting to get these really fantastic models, cluster apartments where there are like eight studios with one shared living space. All of that will come, I think, in Australia. We just need to get that maturity in the sector happening. So unfortunately, I can't say I'm seeing those really innovative models for young people. Um, we know women um, experiencing a gender pay, pay, pay gap from their earliest jobs. <laughs> like they're working at McDonald's and they're seeing a gender pay gap, you know, emerging then. So, yeah, we should be looking at that part of the spectrum for sure. I think those models will come if we just sow the seeds. But in honesty, I'd say that's probably two decades away at best. Yeah. Yeah, and my thoughts at a much more micro level um, because those things are not progressing the way we would see them. I think schools education they're the people who've really got the foot in the door with kids and can start to work out when there are issues and and something's going on there so I think schools being you know as equipped as they can possibly be you know principals teachers to to help and connect and be educated on what exists to help um is great and then also parents you know inviting your kids friends over for dinner having conversations with them it's a really old school way to look at it and it's not going to help the systemic issues but it is something that I've seen I've known quite a few people over my time that you know spent a couple of years living with a friend you know just because of some really kind and engaged parents so I think that's just something we can do on a really micro level any other questions yes thank you uh, can we grab the mic? Thank you. Over here. Hi. Um, it seems to me that um, cultural forces really shape housing access in Australia, um, particularly attitudes around home ownership and as a, an investment class, and this is something that you touched on before, um, and changing policy around negative gearing, uh, for example, has been really unpopular in the past um, in previous elections. Uh, how might we overcome challenges like this culturally and politically as Australians? Great question. Jen, I feel. <laughs> so I feel like I've talked so much. Please. That's all right. Jeanette, Lisa. Look, um, all I can say is I've been trying for years. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I just, I'm not feeling particularly optimistic about it. I mean, negative gearing, you would just think uh, it's a no-brainer, but Clearly, there's, we have uh, a lot of people in power that negative gearing is um, facilitating their wealth very well. And uh, until, you know, people at last are starting to look at the issue of affordable housing because it's affecting so many more people than it has in the past. 
So I feel that I feel as you do, Jen, that there is starting to be some change. But it, you know, it's because we've allowed it to get to such a level that it is, um, you know, affecting so many more in our community. Uh, that it's oh, well, we better start doing something about it. We better start looking at doing things about it. But that. Um, you know, that, that change when it comes to negative gearing, when it comes to um, capital gains tax, when it comes to, um, you know, we had uh, in, in Victoria, I don't know if you remember, but last year, um, towards the end of the year, the state government said there will be a levy put on um, developers uh, when they're doing a development and that, that levy, that tax would actually go into a fund that would that then community housing organisations um, could access to build social housing. That fund was going to live approximately $850 million a year through that levy. That announcement lasted one day before the property sector just, you know, slammed it. And, you know, the, the things that I read, I still remember reading in The Age the next day, you know, they're saying, oh, well, that's going to add $20,000 to every new homeowner. If, if this levy is, is put on, on, um, onto developers, not that, well, the developer might have to pay this extra, you know, um, fee. So just the whole, the, the whole media coverage around all of that, the fact that no one um, that I was aware of in the community housing sector anyway was informed beforehand of this announcement so that we might have been ready for the backlash and, and put out far more positive media coverage around it and what it actually would have been delivering in our society. Um, so just gone. You know, I, I believe there's conversations starting again now to talk about something like, you know, another levy in some way, but when will that happen? I don't know. But, yeah, it's um, how... You know, we do need, I mean, you were saying before, Jen, you know, everyone here today, but talk to, talk to as many people as you possibly can to say, this is, this is a societal issue. This is something that's going to contribute positively to our community if people have a home and somewhere to live um, that's safe and secure and affordable. It has to con um, contribute to productivity in our society. Uh, yeah, just... I don't know, do whatever you can. I've been trying for years. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, maybe one benefit from less and less people being able to own homes in the future will be that they may be less inclined politically to support those kind of um, policies and maybe that will change. I don't know. But hope there's hope. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, obviously, a bit earlier on, there was some chats about location being such an important aspect for women in particular and being connected to a community and wanting to stay there. Um, it just made me think um, a little bit about existing non-residential buildings and um, what the barriers are at the moment, in your opinion, in terms of um, retrofitting existing commercial buildings or buildings in communities that are no longer fit for purpose in their ori original sort of use and could be potentially um, turned into a residential offering. 
Um, yeah, any anecdotal experience around whether you know any initiatives that are pushing retrofitting of existing buildings um, or, yeah, commentary on what the barriers are? In terms of the barriers, I'd love to hear solutions from someone else, but barriers at Nightingale, we've looked at some examples purely from a sustainability perspective because concrete has such a high embodied carbon. Um, so, you know, it, can we reuse concrete? Can we reuse existing buildings? And it's just been too unaffordable and it's just been that um, without any... There are subsidies out there for green building initiatives, but they wouldn't have been appropriate in these cases. So without those or without some kind of a subsidy, it, it, they'd just be too unaffordable um, for us to make that work. But we're really hopeful we can find a building that works and find that as a solution in the future because it would be a really great outcome. Um, other and, and typically the process is it, sites like that lend themselves more to demolition and, and rebuild um, at, at this moment in time with the development life cycle. But any other thoughts? Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's always such a shame to hear about the added cost of retaining existing structure and trying to work within that. It's, it, it always seems to be cheaper to knock down and rebuild. Yeah, which... Um, goes against some of the philosophies of some architects in Europe who aspire to never kind of demolish and always add. Um, but I can't, yeah, it's hard to see what the, what the solution would be. So I can think of one example, and actually you might want to come on a site tour with me in two weeks' time. Um, there's a project in Brunswick at the moment um, that is a, you know, six-pack 70s apartment block and that's been bought um, and is about to be released out. It's been renovated, so I've a friend of mine lives across the street and I can see from a balcony that they're putting in solar panels and double glazing. I was like, I've got to find out what's going on over there. Um, and home ground real estate are actually leasing them out as social um, housing. So um, I'm always looking for the financial rub, but I, I believe that it's a private investor that's, that's bought this stock and is actually leasing out a social and affordable housing. So we should chat. But I know we looked at it at Nightingale and like getting fire regulations, even balustrade heights um, to compliance. It's like, it's so expensive. Um, and this is where I feel like with build to rent, like the sector intersects with it as well. So like the, often the way that it's framed is market perception <laughs> rather than like a housing outcome. And it's like, well, that, that housing asset is seen as lesser than the market than a brand new house. So why would I invest so much? Um, mind you, as we're seeing cost escalations, as you know, like in delivery and um, protracted timelines because of like logistical uncertainty, um, these projects that need a lighter touch retrofit rather than a complete rebuild um, are becoming more attractive. There's also the one that um, Triple are doing with Wilderness Building Co in King Edward Street. Um, although I don't think that that's going to be affordable housing. I think it's going to be small-scale housing for moderate to higher income earners. But I think that's a great example too with Finding Infinity. Um, maybe you can get me on a tour of that one. <laughs> I think we could ask, because Kennedy and Kennedy hey, Nolan are working yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think exactly. We've been hearing a bit about it from them and it's... Um, I think it's going to be an amazing project. It's a great example, um, but they've just had. It's been it's been so hard with the compliance in terms of building code and getting things up to scratch. But we should all go on a study tour. It sounds like. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, a number of you have touched on the complexities of the existing housing system. So not just the housing systems, but construction, planning, development, finance, taxation, which has created this sort of complex system that it's really hard to, to shift and move within. So we each try and do different projects 
that become quite specific and boutique and have a, a containment to them. So, you know, things like, for example, Jeanette, the Beaconsfield project, where you aim to do one thing, but you end up doing something slightly different because of the limitations of finance and legal and Commonwealth rent assistance and, and all those things. Um, so, considering we work in this sort of really complex fixed-in-place system, if, if you could do the, the, the magic thing of come in and change one part of that system to enable, you know, the, the alternative dream to occur, what part of the system would you change? Um, I think uh, some of the things that I've mentioned previously, it just has to come down to uh, re... Um, Realigning where funding goes. So, you know, the, the mandatory inclusionary zoning, the getting rid of the negative gearing tax, uh, looking at capital gains tax, getting that funding in. So, what we could do, what we can change at scale. You know, um, we've talked about how much uh, the federal government is saying, you know, 30,000 properties across, you know, the nation. We need 300,000 properties across the nation. We need to be looking at changing the, the whole housing system so we can deliver uh, affordable housing at scale. And that requires funding, that requires, I would say, getting um, funding sources from alternative, not just from government, but government can provide incentive to do that. Government can incentivise superannuation funds to, to uh, uh, deliver affordable housing. Um, they can actually, as I said, you know, if we get rid got rid of negative gearing, they can use those funds to actually contribute to it. Victorian government, you know, 5.3 billion is 12,000 properties. We have over 50,000 households in our Victorian housing register, and we know there's many, many more people who are eligible for that Victorian housing register. So, you know, 12,000 properties, 30,000 properties across the whole nation. We need big, big change. We need to build at scale. So we need to look at where that money's going to come from. So that's what I'd be doing. Um, and I love, I love to think that maybe more women on boards of, you know, government, semi-government, development, private developers, you know, which is happening from an optics perspective, but that may can, can then start sort of saying, well, this makes financial sense, it makes social sense, it makes sense in every possible way and that people can focus on the whole, you know, story from start to finish, not just the one siloed piece that people tend to look at along the way. We need whole of society to say housing is a human right, <laughs> that a home is a human right. And we need whole of society to see that it contributes to our productivity, our well-being of everyone else in our society if everyone is housed well and properly and safely and securely. It's, you know, it just makes sense. I'll be brief, but just to carry on from that, and I, I think is, um, it's incumbent on our sector to give clarity. Like, I'm, I'm absolutely touched that you would give up your Saturday morning to talk about this topic. But I live and breathe this stuff and we're currently debating what's the definition of social and affordable housing in this state. Now, if this is something I literally apply my mind to all week long and I don't have clarity on that, how can I expect the general public to have clarity on that? I think we have a long way to go to setting a clear definition of what that is, who it's for and what, the, what subsidies and regulations are associated with that. Um, 
I won't go to far, as far as to say that that's intentionally obtuse, but I think it's interesting that we don't have a grasp on a fundamental of that. So just to be clear, it's there's a legislated definition, but it's 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 um, applied in a very patchy way at the moment in the state of Victoria. So you know, when you see or hear about an affordable development, what does that mean? A non-profit developer, what is that? Like, we haven't given clarity to the general public on those terms and we don't have it ourselves. I think that's a starting point. And from there, I think we need to give really clear subsidy. Like, what is the carrot that's available to private developers, community housing providers, community groups to deliver non-profit housing projects? And what are the regulations? How long do we expect you to keep that as social and affordable housing? Um, you know, how are you tenanting those homes? Who is eligible? We don't have clarity on these fundamentals um, and that's really stymieing the industry. Um, it's also riddled with um, obscurity. Like if you apply for NIFIC funding, for federal government funding for a housing project, there are some basic guidelines on the website, but you need to engage in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with one person and you kind of go into a black box of negotiation and they don't publicly um, publish what factors about the finance made that project viable and not another one. We need to be sharing that information. The beauty about this is we're not in it to make a profit, you know. WPI, any, any profit they make, they have to reinvest into future housing. Like, why are we treating these like it's state secrets? We need to be knowledge sharing at every opportunity. So, um, yeah, I guess that's why I've, I've kind of come into a policy role is to try to like demystify a lot of this and um, make it clear for people so they can actually engage because it's so boring. You can't really stay awake long enough to apply your mind, you know? It's a very good point and I have been on a big learning curve myself and I would echo those comments so much. Um, and I would say that just think about, you know, with the sustainability, the environmental sustainability conversation, that was a bit obscure not that long ago. It was a bit radical. It was a bit left. And then the narrative became more clear. People understood what it meant for them, what it meant for society on a broader context. And then elections start to be won because of that. And I think that's where we need to get this conversation to, to see real change. Yeah, sustainability became sexy. I think we need to do that yes, social exactly. housing. Yeah, so we can all do our bit. All right. Um, Thank you so much to everyone for coming today and for my three wonderful panellists. I have learnt a lot. I hope you all have too. And thanks for giving up your Saturday, as Jen said. Um, thank you so much. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.